0: Breaking. This is Ben Pruitt, your host for this mini-series on The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. And of course, we are featuring all of the content from the Avatar, The Last Airbender, and its universe. And this is our fourth episode of this new little mini-series. And just as a reminder, those first two episodes of the miniseries, kind of lay the foundation for the rest of the episodes and the guideposts. So I do recommend starting there. Uh, but guess what? You can really do whatever you want. So no matter what, I'm really excited to discuss it with you all and thank you for listening. This episode is particularly special because for our first time in this little mini-series, we're going to have a little bit of a guest here. And this is a guest that you all will know and love from our prior seasons. So let me, without further ado, introduce Indira Udofia. Indira, welcome. How are you? How's hey, life?
1: Hey, 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 everybody. Life is lifing, as my favorite um, phrase is. Um, school has started back, and um, yes, I'm writing and doing all the things that PhD and therapists do, so
0: it's, yeah, I'm excited. So, can you help our listeners who have never heard your voice before? Tell me, like, who, like, what do you do? Give me a little bit of insight into um, what you—you you said you're—you're you're therapizing. Tell me a little bit more about, like, what yeah. it is you're up to.
1: Yeah, so I am a couns, a therapist and consultant um, for my own private practice, where I help individuals navigate standard. Um, depression, adjustment, anxiety, and also help those who have um, conflated issues with mental health and religious trauma. Um, I also work as a coach for those who are transitioning within their faith journeys or trying to make more sense about how to construct or deconstruct or integrate faith experiences to make their own personal faith practices. And I am a PhD student, a second year PhD student, studying the impacts of uh, religious-based trauma on perceptions of black faith institutes and how does that shape African-Americans' perceptions of self and community.
0: Awesome. Wow. So this is what I'm what I'm gathering from this is that you have a lot to offer, especially considering our content today, which is going to be really interesting. So like for those people that are wondering and I guess figuring it out, we are on guidepost two, which is cultivating self-compassion. And this is remember the deep dive into Brene Brown's The Gifts of Imperfection. And the key to this guidepost is what we have to let go. We have to let go of this big, big, big word called perfectionism. And so I, I'm curious Indira, like without, you know, you can reference the book if you want, but just even your own personal experience, what is, what is perfectionism for you?
1: Um, first I have to, I have to confess that I am a perfectionist in recovery. Um, And so for me, perfectionism really highlights and points out to the idea that you are infallible, immovable, um, and you always operate with a sense of detachment to the world around you, that you're always able to perform and be on and to be present um, and to be all things to everybody and yet nothing to yourself. and so f- perfectionism shows up in my world a lot when um, I start really engaging in um, in dialogues of shame uh, around lack of executive functioning, or inability to um, detach um, or remove emotional, um, energy from a situation um, not being able to communicate with a sense of robotic attachment it shows up in a lot of different ways um, yeah. and it often is pervaded by this thought that I should be something that I am not um, and if that I was am, a
0: big moment for me in my therapy journey sorry to cut you off oh but no like the word should was a big trigger, like, like awareness word. Like anytime I heard or said the word should, I was like, red flag, red flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a, that's really helpful. Yeah. Sorry. Continue.
1: Oh no. Um, and I was, I, you know, as we had discussed prior to, um, you know, cause most therapists should have a therapist if you can help it. Um, in my own therapy, uh, it was uncovered about the fact that most perfectionists have these rules that no one else knows about, no one else sees, and yet they govern our waking day, moment, and cognitions every step of the way. Um, And so perfection, being a perfectionist in recovery is realizing how I need to tap into my own inner rebellion for these rules that make no sense for my actual
0: life. Ooh, I love that. Just, okay. So I need to tap, this is my new mantra. I need to tap into my inner rebellion. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So because that really resonates with me too, is because like, no, I I shouldn't do that. Or I should do this. And like, these are these constructs, these rules that we put in place for ourselves, that it's like, no, I'm going to break the rules here. This is something that like, I get to do, I'm going to do it for myself, and then not blaming or shaming or doing anything when we end up breaking those rules, right? It's, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot there.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much about it that, like, I think when you think about perfection, and I mean, it really is kind of a self-drag to be on this episode versus some of the (laughs) other ones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um but it is something to be said about the way in which things and messages just tying it to my work right this idea of perfectionism is tied to the fact that we we as folks who have been socialized under a Christian society believe in a deity that is perfect right and so yeah. to follow the ways of whatever deity you serve If your deity is one of perfection, one that is detached and unmovable, not vulnerable, not shaped or shaken by the world around them, then anytime you show an ounce of imperfection, it's almost like it's a failure to be faithful to your religious call.
0: And also, it's like I'm unworthy. Right, mm-hmm. I'm unworthy of this this perfection and this love of whatever you know. Again, pairing pairing into this Christian trope of like, if God is perfect, then who am I to be loved by such perfection? Um, because we're constantly making mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ugh, man. So yeah, I, I think this is going to be a, a good starting point for us and for and. For everybody else, what we're doing now is we're going to kind of just start talking about our wholehearted inventory. So if you haven't taken that inventory yet, feel free to pause here and go take the wholehearted inventory on Brown.com. Mm. It is free. Uh, also, you don't necessarily need to do it if you don't want to, because uh, it just what it does is gives you a sense of where you might be in terms of a spectrum on the idea of leaning into perfectionism versus leaning into this idea of self-compassion. So I took this inventory at the beginning of this little mini-series. And I'm not going to lie, I uh, got lower scores than I did <laughs> 10 years ago when I took this, this inventory. Um, and it's changed a little bit, but I, it's really interesting for me because this is... I, I got less than 50% on this one. Yeah. Um, which uh hurts a little bit in in the in, in the intellectual understanding of it um how about you how did you score
1: so i uh got a whopping uh approximate 20% <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man okay i thought i was like bad. i said
1: Ooh. i'm in recovery <laughs>
0: oh yeah no, I would like, I, I think I would say that I'm a recovering perfectionist as well. Like, I think that, um, I could point to a lot of people that experienced this. So, okay. So let me ask you this then, just so we can dive in, um, a little bit. Like if I were to ask you, um, when was the, the, the first time in your life that you experienced this need to be perfect in whatever area that what that is for you whether it be grades or body image or intellect or whatever it might be what what was that first time that you remember feeling that need to be perfect
1: I'm glad you mentioned that and you mentioned grades because school was the site what like I call the the origin story of my villainhood um mm. so You know, growing up in predominantly white spaces, um, I went to an elementary school with predominantly white, uh, rich white, as my second grade teacher liked to told me, um, students. And so, you know, when you are introduced to the educational system, um, you start to really learn um, how. How the cards are stacked against you. So my parents gave me the talk that you have to be twice as good to get half mm-hmm. the recognition. And I took that and I ran with it. Um, and so I remember uh, one day in particular, we were testing for academic um, academically gifted classes. Um, and I, it, my mother was having ovarian cancer surgery the same day. Um, and I remember getting the scores and I was one point below the threshold to be included in the academic services. And there was no accommodations given to me. There was no, there was nothing um, given to me, um, to like, to account for that. The fact that I was under stress, because I knew my mom was having surgery, um, that day. And so my mom had a fight to prove that I was worthy. Mm -hmm. Um, and from then on, I had in the back of my mind that I never wanted someone to question whether or not I actually belonged in the room. Yeah. And I took that and I overachieved everything. I tried to outwork outpace and, and just be so much more than what I actually was simply because that one question of whether or not I was actually worthy to be in the place because of an undue stress that a seven, a seven-year-old should never have to think about. Yeah. Um, and the fact that there was no grace. And I was smarter than everybody in my class, (laughs) so. Yeah, yeah. uh, um, (laughs) You know, not to toot my own horn, but toot, toot, beep, beep. Um, Yeah. And so that really started it. And I realized that by being socialized in that space, that started this whole whirlwind of perfectionism that I just could not let go.
0: Yeah, this is like, it's honestly very reminiscent of my experience, not it just in the sense of being a school related for me. Um, And I just remember I was the type of person that was always praised for being smart, right? And every time I did something I, I did really well, I didn't ever have to, to study and then I started to believe that the only thing that made me worthy was that I was doing those things. And so I couldn't quit. I could never stop. Like it was one. Of... So it just becomes harder and harder the more you grapple with it. And it's like this, this downward spiral that just loops you in. Um, And I, and I think that what I really find interesting about your story is it, it kind of reminds me of the Anne Lamott quote. Um, are you, uh, Anne Lamott, writer, um, really, really prolific writer anyway. Anyway, the quote is, I think, something along the lines of, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor. It's the enemy of the people. Yeah. (laughs) And just, I I think about that in terms of your story and how, like, often the, the, the shame gremlin that drives our perfectionism, if you will, is a a construct that's based off of the the society that we live in. It's based off of the people around us that are shaping us, and it's it really is. It's kind of feels like this the voice of this oppressor, um, and I think that we'll see that as we dive into some of these avatar moments too. But uh, did, does that resonate for you? Is that yeah. something that I yeah.
1: I was thinking as you were talking about that was two things, one, how tricky white supremacy is, right? On the Um, imaginations of everyone and how it's a bondage, not just to people of color, but white people in general, because everyone has to live up to this. There's not a lot of wiggle room or grace if you don't fit a certain performance. Um, And then to kind of tie back to the first guidepost about authenticity, um, I realized in taking the inventory and kind of reading the post, and then just thinking about my own experiences with perfectionism, that I never actually learned how to exist. I only learned how to perform, and so. Oh, gosh. I know it's it, it gutted me once I realized it, and so here I am approaching thirty three. Shout out to all the Virgos, um, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll turn thirty three. on on Sunday and my, yeah, I know, what a thing. And as I approach what we call our Jesus here, um, I realized that for the first time in the history of my life, part of the work that I've engaged in is learning how to not perform, but merely just be. And then oh. I get mad at myself because I can't live up to the expectations that my performance has has laid before me. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle.
0: Well, and that's what's so tricky. We talked about this last episode, but whenever we start to embrace our authenticity and we start to become who we are meant to be, who we really are, what happens is that means that something's going to change. And if we've been living in this perfectionist mode our entire lives, and then we start to change, what that change is going to look like is us resting more. It's going to look like us taking a nap. It's going to look, and then people are going to call us lazy. People are going to start to judge that change in behavior and assume that it's less than our best when really we've been giving way, way more than our best for a long time,
1: I just think that sometimes when we think about how we show up, right? When we put so much i uh, so much onus on the identity of what we do and how we how we model or how we act in the world, and then once those things no longer work, like because you you can't keep up a facade, but for so long, <laughs> eventually you're you can't keep it up. Um, and so as I have been thinking a lot about this, like a lot of what comes with navigating um, mental health and shifting spirituality or any of those things that I like study and engage is literally allowing space for you to realize that people don't really know you. They know the mask that you wear. They know the veneer that you give. And so all the relationships. Are superficial, not because of other people being withholding, but you yourself in the airs of living as a perfectionist are the yeah. most emotionally of the emotionally withholding person that you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to start touching on some moments specifically from the book and yeah. hooking them into some of the avatar universe moments. And what you're saying really kind of is speaking to that already. It's a really good segue. hmm so, the first thing that Brown talks about in in this text is that there is an interwoven relationship between shame and perfectionism right mm-hmm. They are and we, just in our conversation, we have kind of been speaking that we've said mm-hmm. how we are feeling so much shame because of our drive to be perfect right, mm-hmm. and so they're they're like two sides of a very intermeshed thing mm-hmm. um and I think the problem is the 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 paradox is. We don't want to claim shame, right? We're Mm -hmm. willing to claim perfectionism, but we aren't willing to claim the shame that comes with it. And when we don't, it claims us and Mm -hmm. forces us to continue in this perfectionist cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And these masks that people get used to, these relationships that are somewhat like facade of a relationship, if you will, remind me of... um, kiyoshi Mm -hmm. where she's literally wearing a mask right Uh, she has this face paint on and she is able to kind of hide behind this face paint and there there's a quote in shadow of kiyoshi spoiler alert um where she says enemies are enemies but no one can shame you like your family Mm -hmm. and it reminds me of how uh the the people who are closest to us have the ammo and I use that, you know, metaphor intentionally to, mm-hmm. to hurt us the most because they've seen us without those masks on, mm-hmm. right? And so, can you? What, what's that? What is that like for you? Tell me about your response to that.
1: I think you know, that is why um, intimacy is such risk, right? Yes. Um, when you claim a person <laughs> and, I, and I use claim very yeah. targeted, right? Once you have declared someone your person and you literally show like, this is where the cracks are in the veneer. Um, um, You've seen me at my lowest and my worst where I cannot do or be everything that I say and pride myself to be, that's a power dynamic at play. Right. And so what ends up happening is because people see you as not being these things that you perform out in the world, right. They are playing into the lie that you give to other people by keeping your secret. And as I think about the power of owning the fact that I'm not perfect and being a hot mess and learning how to like, name that for myself unrepentedly, um, I realized that I don't then have to play into entertaining relationships, entertaining dynamics, entertaining arrangements that don't serve my highest good because I'm afraid of what someone may say about, you think you're so perfect, but let me tell you about who you really are. Cause I see it for yeah. myself, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, as some may know, but others may not know, going to seminary, right? That's why there's this like scripture reference about a prophet has no honor in their own home. You can't fully embrace the truth about who you are when someone thinks they have the dime on you.
0: Hmm. Wow. You know, what What you're saying really reminds me of a concept that I first read about and uh, not avatar verse but i i I think i want to mention it anyway um are you familiar with the idea of like true names and when you like when you share someone your your name they have power over you Mm -hmm. and and the idea that this the name insinuates that when you know someone's name you know who they really are Mm -hmm. right and it's in The Inheritance Cycle, which is by Christopher Paolini talking about Aragon. It's also a concept in The Name of the Wind and The Kingkiller Chronicles. It's mm-hmm. a concept in several fantasies. Mm-hmm. But when you when you know someone's true name, what you know is you know everything about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems to me that when you are able to know someone and know everything about them, that is a I. I I think of it as a power dynamic in there because literally they're saying you have power over somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think it really speaks to like the privilege of knowing someone at their core, because you, you know who they really are. You know, their Mm -hmm. name, you know what they're capable of and you're Mm -hmm. able and yet not willing to lord it over them in those real relationships, right? Mm -hmm.
1: And I would would even try to maybe argue or reshape a little bit. It is a perception of knowing, right? Because no one can truly fully know us. Even our families don't fully Mm -hmm. know us. They know what we allow them to see. They know when we have our slips and cracks, but then there's even stuff that we hide within our family systems because those things are too deep and too tender to be held. Yeah. And I think that's another piece of it, right? It's like even when we think about the risk of intimacy, the part of us that wants to withhold certain things, the part of us that want to hide or hide behind certain traits or attributes in order to kind of fly underneath the radar in our family systems, right? Yeah, is a absolutely. is a protective measure. And I I have yet to Find a space in which I have permission to fully come apart
0: mm-hmm.
1: other than paying someone $25 every week <laughs> to tell yeah. them about my life.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because they, there are those boundaries that even when I'm paying that $25, I still don't feel like I can do that sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I suck at that, like historically. Mm -hmm. being able to even when i know that this is like a space that i don't have anything to lose but except when i'm not sharing i still end up not doing it um but i think that this is a good starting point for us right and kind of leaning into this this tie in between how like there is a what i'm taking away from this so far is one there's a power dynamic that is involved with perfectionism And I'm also identifying that it is immensely wrapped up in shame, Mm -hmm. right? So that's, I think, the two main things that we've talked about so far. And so I want to kind of outline Brene Brown's definition of Mm -hmm. perfectionism. And so it's the, this is her definition. It's the belief that if we live perfect, look perfect, act perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of shame, blame, and judgment. And she calls it the 20-ton shield because what we think it will protect us, but then when we try to actually use it, we literally can't pick it up. Um, And that's kind of the imagery she provides. And I'm thinking about all of these things combined, that definition, and also what we've talked about so far. And I think no one's surprised. I think we'll be spending a lot of time on Azula this, this episode. But I'm thinking about Azula and especially in her early years right because like it it's it's shame and perfectionism together it's not about striving to be our best right it's not this healthy like healthy striving it's not self improvement it's like the the inner voice is not how can i improve it's what will they think it, it's it's other focused right and there's this moment from zuko's memories in Zuko Alone, season two, episode seven, where (laughs) what happens is she's going back in time and uh, Ozai, Urza, Zuko, and Azula are all sitting in front of Fire Lord Azulon. And Ozai is like quizzing them. And asked about the history of some x y and z battle and zuko's like um i think this happened and then immediately azula cuts in and answers it like textbook answer and ozai's like yes that's exactly correct and then he's like azula why don't you also demonstrate how perfect your bending is and then she goes and perfectly executes this thing and in the background you see ozai smile and at the end of that demonstration he says She's a prodigy and talks about all these things. And she sits down and says to Zuko, you'll never catch up.
1: So I'm glad you mentioned this because one of the things that really drives the drives perfectionism, right, is how we are socialized. And so the Fire Nation <laughs> Royal Family is a master class in family systems theory. Um and so if you know anything about family systems right there is an ideology that a family member pays a kind of role in order for a family system to function, whether it be dysfunctionally or unhealthily or healthily, right? There are certain roles that people must fulfill in order for the family system to reach what we would call a homeostasis or the base level functioning for a group. And Azula is the hero of the family, right? Which is normally called the poster child or the good child, right? And there's a weight of responsibility where not only is she responsible for exceeding expectations and being a source of pride, but also she is responsible for the burdens of other people. So when I originally saw it, I was like Azula is really like a jerk, right? Yeah. I had to think about my own siblings and I realized that it may not have been malicious initially but the responsibility, if my brother is struggling and can't get it right, and it's gonna piss my dad off then I have to answer it and do the thing just so it kind of quells the anger and keeps everything at bay. And then I was like-
0: interesting.
1: I'm the Azula of my family.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the realization everybody wants to have.
1: (laughs) Right. Like I overachieve, right? So I'm the one who went to school. I have all the degrees. You know, I've got, I was really super independent. I never really Uh asked for help. I really wasn't trying to go outside too much. I wasn't trying to do much of anything. And all I did was make it harder for my siblings to be themselves because I was always the good kid. And then I was always trying to curb the attention by meeting a need before the need was even asked, Mm
0: -hmm. which pissed
1: everybody off, right? Yeah. So I had a compassion for Azula where I was like, wow, Azula is a cautionary tale of what happens when you take the hero trope too far. Interesting.
0: And just to kind of speak to family systems therapy as well, like I'm also just to kind of somewhat of an aside is that there's also that family system within us as well, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so we have different pieces of our own self that act as the hero. And then there's a piece of us that acts as like the firefighter or whatever the different roles are within um each of us. And so I think that it's important to think about literal relationships among a family, but also <laughs> like we have those different pieces of us within our own brains that are kind of modeling and figuring those things out as well to achieve homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's for internal family systems. It's the managers, the exiles and the firefighters. Um, and so the managers are kind of consummate to the hero. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a mixture between managers and firefighters tend to be what hero tropes are.
0: Yeah. So again, like this idea that somewhere along the way, when we are raised in an environment that is about what we accomplish, we, uh, we, we adopt this kind of dangerous, debilitating belief system, which is that I am what I accomplish, and how well I accomplish it, right? We have to please perform and perfect. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I think that Even if Azula is playing the hero and not malicious initially, right? She is still, this is like an origin for, maybe not the origin, but certainly our origin, where this is the earliest scene we see of her being praised for her being so far ahead when clearly Zuko is not being praised for at all, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for being behind, right? And I think that one story that that might be is that I'm not loved unless I perform. I'm not loved unless I perfect right Mm -hmm. absolutely and when our worthiness and our love is hinging upon our ability of course we're gonna do our best to do the best we possibly can of course we're gonna damage other parts of ourselves in order to like feel loved and so i i just think it's worth um saying that like yes both you and I have claimed this recovering perfectionism, but also it's one of those things where like, if this is something you're grappling with and you're listening, this is, it is in no way a judgment of you. It is something that we are all grappling with.
1: Absolutely. And I think another thing to say, right, is that sometimes when we, the the pressure to perform, right, is driven by the fear of never touching shame, right? And so Mm, it's a double-edged sword where if I don't perform, I feel shame. And then I feel shame about feeling shame. And then I will do whatever it takes to never feel the crushing weight of shame again. Even if that means going outside the confounds and boundaries of my own doing and making. And that it's a vicious cycle. So both Zuko and Azula are both victims of shame. It just manifests differently in each person.
0: Yeah, and I would I would also say they're both victims of perfectionism. Absolutely. It's not just victims of shame. They're both striving to be perfect in every way that they can. There's the episode with Zuko at the very beginning saying like, teach me the next set. I have to be perfect and know the best and be the best. And like, I, I think that it's easy to point to Azula because... She, like she, it's, it's,
1: she's perfect at being perfect
0: <laughs> yeah it's like I, I hate to say it's a perfect example but oh my goodness it's a perfect example um but it's also not always the villain right that experiences mm-hmm. perfectionism right it's yes. like if let's go to cora for instance like legend of cora queen yeah my queen for real like is a perfect like she's a recovering perfectionist and thank goodness because starting in like season four she has this recovery that she's going through and She gets, you know, people call her out for it.
1: You know, I noticed about Cora's journey, and I know Cora gets a lot of crap within the fandom. But I will say, Cora is someone that shows just how hard it is to live up to the expectations of not only other people, but the expectations of yourself. And so every mishap that happens with Cora is an act of her pursuing perfectionism in pursuing the perfect role of being the avatar and living up to the standards of a ghost.
0: Oh, 1,000%. And I, I think what's really interesting about that is that there's this paradox when it comes to like perfectionism self-talk.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's this idea that like, Where is it in the book? Um, The self-talk of perfectionism on page 78 of the 10th anniversary edition is... Ugh, nothing fits, I'm fat, I look like crap, I'm ashamed of how I look, I need to be different than how I am right now to be worthy of love and belonging. That's like the perfectionism self-talk. Mm-hmm. And for Korra, it's not necessarily body image that she's worried about. For her, it's, I can't airbend. Ugh, mm-hmm. I'm a terrible airbender. I can't bend, I don't have the capacity, I'm ashamed that I can't airbend, I need to be different, and I, I'm not worthy of being the avatar. hmm Right? And then healthy striving sounds completely different, right? Mm. And this is something we don't really see from Korra until like season four, <laughs> right? And After it's, life like, has I, beat her down. <laughs> yeah. Right? And she's like, I she like the the language changes to healthy striving self-talk, which is like I want this for me. Mm-hmm. I want to feel better. I want to be healthier. This this idea of bending doesn't dictate if I'm loved and accepted. At this point, she started like realizing her feelings for Asami, right? If if I believe that I'm worthy and of love and respect now, I will be more courageous, compassionate, and have more connection. And we see her do that because she's more empathetic and compassionate with Kuvira, right? It's only through her experience of this trauma that she's been through that she's able to engage Kuvira in a way that says, listen, I don't want to fight you. Right? Where on season one, she'd have been all up in Kuvira's business. I absolutely
1: would have marked her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, let's just name a thing a thing, would have act, mm. absolutely ended her. You yes. know, on
0: site. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I just, I think it's a sign of Korra's um, growth. So mm-hmm. again, we're all grappling with perfectionism in some way, shape, or form. But... I think one of the things that's scary here is that one of the things that perfectionism does is it kind of gets in the way of everything and it enables and leads to these things like depression, anxiety, addiction, um, like a, a analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. And these are the things where, like, all the things where, like, oh, there are so many opportunities, but I can't choose one because if I choose one, I'll do it imperfectly. Um, and so risking with this idea of perfectionism is putting our self-worth on the line. And so this is like really interesting when we put it in context of another moment with Azula, uh, where (laughs) she's demonstrating in season two, episode one, right? Mm -hmm. Episode one, like this is like really our first grapple with Azula, Mm -hmm. where she's demonstrating her lightning bidding, bending, and Lo and Lee are sitting there and says, almost perfect just one hair out of place. (laughs) And Azula responds with almost isn't good enough. Yep. And tell me that isn't exactly case in point. What we're talking about here.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That scene. That's when I said, Oh my God, I'm Azula. Um, Because it is so (laughs) easy. You know, you can get praise. And, and people don't mean it maliciously. I realize um, this is growth, right? Shout yeah. out to my therapy, my therapist over the years who have taught me this. Um, but my mind does not hear anything but deficiency and scarcity, and that alone will drive me to the point of no return like mm. it will be my 13th reason if i let it um to borrow tick tock language um yeah it is very very hard to hold space for the fact that if i try at something and i'm not right at the first time that it's not a testament to my ability my talent or even a testament to the fact of my capability. Like it is literally, you can suck at something for the first time and be okay. My brain does yeah. not comprehend that.
0: Correct. Yes. Agreed. Same. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking my language.
1: Yeah. It just doesn't comprehend, and so to see that and to hear that, I knew exactly what that meant.
0: Yeah. In that. So let moment. me ask you this. If, if you were to, the most generous assumption of Lo and Lee in this moment is that they were telling her that she was an excellent firebender Mm -hmm. and like, and like, literally that was almost perfect. Just one hair out of place. Right. But the way it's said, the way I interpret it is that, oh, you were almost perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, but like implying that. You weren't perfect. And it's these kind of statements that like, oh, man, that was almost perfect, where I could mean it in the nicest way, but someone's going to hear it the way you just described, where Mm -hmm. all I hear is deficiency when you Mm -hmm. say almost perfect.
1: Yeah. And to be honest, who can be perfect,
0: right? Like. That's the problem with all of this, right? This is a, an unreasonable expectation to be putting on ourselves. This is literally impossible. <laughs> it's an unattainable goal. It's like, self-destructive.
1: It is, and it, and I think that's the problem. And you know, I'm I'm gonna go on my mini capitalism rant. Right? When Let's do it. when are worth. Is tied to the things that we can produce and what other people can consume, perfection becomes the only way that we can differentiate ourselves and prove our worth. And so if we cannot, if we cannot think or imagine a possibility that in my perfection, right, I can't produce all these things. So if, let's just say, if, they said that was perfect. It wouldn't be good enough because I've got to top what I've already done. There would be no room for me to grow. There would be no room for me to do anything. So I would, I would turn it to myself.
0: Yeah. And what I hear, when I hear that was perfect is your standards aren't high enough. (laughs)
1: that's that's how
0: I respond right it's like oh you think that's perfect I can see all the flaws that means your standards aren't high enough (laughs) right right? um and so like what is our what do we do about this? Because like Renee Brown gives us all these insights, right? This is what perfectionism is. She talks about like, yes, it's, it's self-destructive. It's addictive, right? It's like, it's a, it is addictive, right? We mm-hmm. get into this spiral and it's hard to get out. It's self-destructive because of what we've just described. It's something that we inevitably will experience, right? We are, mm-hmm. if we are, perf- if we are living in this perfectionism, we are going to inevitably experience shame, blame, or judgment because mm-hmm. That is the human experience, and there's no one who can escape that. And so, but the problem is perfectionism like doesn't question that logic. Instead, we dig ourselves deeper because we're like, "Oh, I wasn't perfect enough." Yeah. And I I think uh, okay. Before we talk about like how do we drop it, like how do we get rid of it, I I, I want to have you ever heard of um MSW Jake?
1: Love them.
0: Yeah. MSW Jake did a little thing that I loved. Uh, And for those of you who are listening, he's a uh, Jake Ernst. He's a therapist, social worker from um, Toronto, Ontario. And he has an Instagram account that's somewhat large and I follow him. And um, he did a, a little series on the eight modes of perfectionism. And I kind of want to just briefly go through them because I think it's worth uplifting this idea that there isn't just one type of perfectionism, right? Right. There are multiple ways this can emerge within us. And so I want to just briefly name the ones that uh, he kind of crafted. And so he named eight. One, the crafter, or I'm sorry, the climber. In order to be perfect and successful, I need power and status. Then there's the controller, which is if I can control, manage, and be in charge, I can avoid shame and failure. The knower. If I know everything, I can avoid the shame of not being good enough. The shower. If I appear like I am keeping it together, no one will notice my flaws. The hider. If I work on myself quietly, then no one will notice my failures. The performer. The performer. If I grind and adopt the perfect mindset, I will experience less failure. The critiquer. This person operates from the belief that nothing ever seems to be good enough. If I see the flaws in myself and others first, I won't be caught off guard. And then lastly, the non-starter. If I start something new, there's a chance I will fail or not be good enough. And when I first read these, I was like, what do you call it when you have all eight?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that you when you were reading them, I literally was like, so um I I, I I'm waiting to not hear something that I've done.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and I think that one, I think that these different modes of perfectionism speak to how some people can experience All of these on a spectrum, but some people experience some of these way more than others, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these are like the modus operandi for some of us. And then for others, it's like, oh, I feel that one sometimes, or I've never felt that in my life. And I just think it's really interesting to think about how these different ways perfectionism can emerge within us.
1: Yeah. I just want to know for those who haven't felt, um, the different types in one way, shape, or form, whether it's one of them or all of them, what does it feel like to be God's favorite? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have never. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm sitting on projects right now that I'm supposed to be starting. Cause I'm like, Mm-mm, I'm gonna set first.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the whole Voltaire Candide moment of like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right? Yes. Um, because like, listen, like good is good enough, y'all. We we, we can just let let things happen. Which kind of kinda of brings us to this continuum idea of verse of like it's it's not a you are either a perfectionist or you are not, right? And I think a lot of times we perceive others to be oh, they're a perfectionist, right? Um, or oh, I'm a perfectionist. But when really it's it's way more complicated than that and more um of a continuum right and mm-hmm. for some it's like Chronic and debilitating and for others it's only Like a, a triggered response and it's only mm-hmm. in Certain areas of our lives Um but what I was thinking About is The ideolo- uh, The ideologies of our Main villains in this in the Korra series mm-hmm. And how all of them Are kind of living into Different ideologies And trying to perfect Them right and so like Aman is in this communist kind of experience where he's going through and takes it way too far to mm-hmm. equality through persecution. Mm-hmm. Right. And he thinks that in order to be perfect, you have to, um, the ethics make it so that the means are worth it rather than the ends. And then mm-hmm. Unalak is this theocracy, reconnection through destruction. Zahir anarchy, freedom through chaos, Kuvira, fascism, unity through submission. And, it's interesting to me to put all of them into this context of like these are all people that are suffering some from some severe perfectionism. What mm-hmm. are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think all of them have some type of utopian vision gone wrong, right? And I think yeah. you know, one of the things that I really have have kind of wrestled with, right, is like even most heroes are villains to somebody. Right, mm. and so, um, and I know we're talking about the Avatar universe, but I just have to mention um, and shout out being a Marvel fan.
0: Oh yeah,
1: um, and I am not going to spoil the 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 uh, the trailer for Spider Spider Man No Way From Home.
0: Yeah. Please don't. I'm 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 not
1: spoiling. But I'm going through the I MCU will right say, now, chronologically. I will say, as you are journeying through the MCU, a lot of our heroes are villains. Truth. And and they all strive for a more perfect society. The only thing that separates the villain from the hero is one who gets to tell the story and two, how much damage gets done. And yeah. I realize that when we talk about these like perfectionisms on a continuum, we all strive and we all fail. Mm. It's the amount of failure that matters when the story gets told. And and that's something that I cannot wrap my brain around in this stage of my healing journey but it is a part of it right is like what does it mean when we strive so much to make a perfect world but the way that we go about it because we are tunnel vision on it being perfect that we miss the casualties along the way
0: yeah no i'm i'm getting chills right now because that's like the perfect segue <laughs> <laughs> got you <laughs> that we are imperfect we have to acknowledge our vulnerabilities and we have to develop shame resilience and practice self-compassion these are the things that are prescribed by Brene in this book to begin letting go of perfectionism
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and when I think about all of the hero moments and I say hero in quotes uh, when I think about all these hero and or villain moments where we are Kind of judging them right we are We are placing that judgment On them it's because what What I realize is that we are lacking In the empathy And the compassion to see what They're doing and To understand where they're coming From right Mm -hmm. And It's easier to empathize with the heroes Because we learn about their pasts We learn about their but like Oftentimes we don't learn about that with our villains Mm Mm-hmm And I think it makes it easier to empathize with our heroes because we are able to see their journey and see the long history of how they've gotten to this point. And it allows us to be like, Oh no, but they really mean well. Mm -hmm. And there's really, everybody has a story y'all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so let me ask you this. When, in order to really lean into this, this idea of of being and of having grace for the people that are quote the villains in our lives right when when we are leaning so hard into perfectionism, it seems like the best way to go about it is to kind of listen to this brene's like little little uh equation here, which is self compassion plus shame resilience equals the ability to embrace our imperfections. And so how do we how do we start that journey? You mentioned this healing journey of like yes, we're all villains, yes, we're we're all heroes, we're all working through this really complicated perfectionism journey. How do we begin to embrace this concept of self-compassion? And then how do we begin to talk about shame resilience so that we can really lean into the fact that we're imperfect?
1: Yeah. Um, So I think it's twofold, right? Like there's ways that we can affirm ourselves and we can kind of do the work of like really learning and touching like the parts of us that are the most tender and making our peace with those tender spaces, right? And... Some of it is also learning how to encourage risk um, and not be so risk averse. So that way we can bounce back from things, realizing to fail is to fail is not nearly just failing, but it's not trying in general. But then there's another piece of myself where I'm like really, really big on in these moments of shame, in these moments of being adverse in these moments of hardship, right? Um, I who am I? what age am I when I experience that? what what part of my story is triggered in the response of my failing? Um, because I realize that in these moments of imperfection, right? It's not 33-year-old wisdom, Indira, that's responding to the failure. I'm like eight, I'm 12, I'm 16.
0: It goes back to that first time we experienced it, right?
1: Right, it's the story, it's the most salient stories that we tell ourselves that began the the tapes of, I need to be perfect. And in those moments, I have to go back and self-soothe. I have to go back and be the adult that I wish I had in those moments. Shout out to my parents, they did the best they could with the information they had, right? Mm. That's that's compassion. Yeah. But in this grown, in, in my big grown age, I get to be my own parent and I get to parent myself in a way that gives me gentler, gentler places to land. Yeah.
0: And in, in a way that's a really uncomfortable conversation because we have to talk to ourselves. Again, if we kind of go back to this internal family systems Like, we have to be the person that's able to say, of course, this was a good response for you when you were eight years old. It Mm -hmm. helped you. It helped you then. It kept it got you to be where we are today. And we have more tools now on our toolbox. Mm -hmm. You don't have to respond this way. And I like what would it be like to say this instead? Like, like Mm -hmm. giving ourselves that generosity, right? Of saying, of course, the way you responded was like, of course, it makes sense. And we have a capacity within us to use what we have now, this 33-year-old wisdom, if you will, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah. And I think another piece is like when we, when we meet ourselves in moments of failure, right? Um, Ju- Judith Jack Hambleson wrote this book called The Queer Art of Failure. It's a little Ooh. academic but it changed my life. They wrote about how failure in general is a queer, uh, exercise in queerness. And this Ooh, idea of leaning into frivolity, right? And play is the way that we actually show up as our full whole selves. That mm. when we were children, we played we we fumbled, we played, and yeah. those things made us and shaped us into what we know we are, like these constraints. But there was always some pushing up and against whatever confines, and there was always some boundary pushing that happens in the act of failure. And so, you know, as someone who considers themselves um, a genderqueer person, right? A gender queer woman. I fail at being a woman every single day. I fail at it. Being Black inherently makes me fail at the project of womanhood in a Western society. And yet my ability to exist and assert the name woman is a practice of resilience. So I think sometimes it even takes examining how on a construct, right? We do this thing of resilience and embracing imperfections every day, but we don't think of it as such because it feels small or it feels ordinary to do so. So if I can do that big, if I can fail in such a big way, being a Black, queer, genderqueer person, failing at a math problem is nothing.
0: Yeah, it really is. I, I thought instead of resilience, you were going to say resistance, mm-hmm. and I, I think in my head, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, both would fit. Because again, mm-hmm. when I go back to this Anne Lamott quote that perfectionism is this voice of the oppressor, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same deal here. Your your failure quote failure, if you mm-hmm. will, is enabling you this capacity to resist this oppressive system,
1: right. right. Right? Yeah, I mean let's let's uh tie it back to our girl Azula, right?
0: Mm, I love that.
1: In the midst of her losing her mind. Yes. In I'm the midst of yes. her losing her mind, what she produces is perfect. Yeah. She fails at staying staying tethered to this reality. Cause at that point she was full on psychotic. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she fails at being realistic and yet what she produces is perfect,
0: right? And, and, and to make that, that point explicit, i, I just to make sure we're talking about the same thing in this battle with Zuko and Katara, she is like full on breakdown. And like maniacally laughing and yelling and screaming and crying and all the things. And this there's this moment when she is lightning bending, where I think you're referencing this moment where she makes this perfect circle, yes, in the air, and it's literally like like you see her draw it, and it's like oh my god, it's not that's not slanted or swayed or anything. And whoa, right? It's a perfect circle, and then she zaps them, and I'm just like oh my goodness, how? Is she doing that? And, oh, all right. It's, it's, it's
1: an act of power, right? In the midst of this imperfect imperfect moment with all of her hairs out of place, with yeah. all of her mind being all over the place, with her realizing that she cannot outwork the wounds that she has personally carried as being the hero in her own story.
0: Yeah. This still happens. So... Why do you think that is? Like, what, what is, how is she able to, can you, can you elaborate just a little bit more yeah. on how you think this is happening?
1: So one of the things that I think about is when I am in distress, again, this is me over-identifying with Azula, sue me. I love when it. When I am in distress and I cannot control anything, I will overindulge the thing I can control. So for me, it's my work. So I could be going through a breakup. I could be going through heartache. I could be going through grief, disappointment. But my paper that I write for class is going to slap.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Those case notes, getting done. Uh, (laughs) The food I make, amazing. I literally... A a good example of this is I had realized that I had gotten triggered by an event and I wasn't, my brain wasn't giving me what I thought it was supposed to give. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I purchased all this food that I wanted because I had a specific thing in mind. And I went and I made the most amazing Nigerian dish I have ever cooked in my entire life.
0: Now I want some.
1: Oh my gosh. We'll, we'll talk offline. But, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> um, and I, and I realized in that moment that the one thing I know I can always depend on is my abilities in the kitchen, nothing, everything else could go to crap but my abilities, right? Cause that's the yeah. one thing that I am praised for. All my friends love sitting, putting their legs underneath my table. I brag to a, a mutual friend of ours about how amazing my food is. Yeah. Um, and like, that's the one thing I can lean on. So if I can't depend on anything else, if the story that I've been told my entire life has been unfrayed, the one skill I have is this lightning and you're gonna get this work.
0: No, I love that because this is the discipline that Azula has been practicing her pretty much her entire life, right? And she was prodigious. She was exceptional at bending. And it's one of those things where it that was where she put all of her energy was being able to dominate in this area. And it makes sense that it makes sense that that is surviving because it's almost on autopilot in this moment of like, I got this. I can break down everywhere else, but this is something I don't even have to think about. Um, wow. That's a, that's a really interesting insight there. Um, yeah. And I, like, I'm really thankful for, I, uh, asked early on, uh, this week that I said we were going to cover this context and on perfectionism and a few people answered. And this is one of the moments that came up. So I'm, I'm excited that we got to talk about it. Um, Okay, so thinking about this means that we have to grapple with something here, right? So this idea that, you know, perfectionism exists, and in order to combat that, we need to cultivate these two things. One, self-compassion. Two, shame resilience. And you spoke to that really well. And one of the things that Brene Brown says, that all of the the quote, the wholehearted people, the the weirdos, have... A an attitude where they believe that we are all doing the best that we can and this is something that we've talked about on the podcast pretty extensively of this hypothesis of generosity is something that the wholehearted people have because how we treat ourselves leads to how we treat others and what I realized as I thought about this in this context was that like guess who doesn't have this attitude Cora doesn't have this attitude especially <laughs> early on Azula definitely don't have this attitude (laughs) right and then I think about who does right who does have this attitude and it seems like Aang does a pretty good job of this Katara does a pretty good job of this Iroh does a pretty good job of this it seems like these people that we're like oh these are the great ones like these are the people that often have this oh people are doing the best they can attitude and i'm curious like what's your response to that what are your what are your thoughts um so
1: this is where i kind of take issue with renee don't shoot
0: Bring me. bring it on bring it on
1: how we treat others is normally better than how we treat ourselves it's aspirational we treat others the way we would want to treat ourselves, but we don't have the capacity to do it due to the way that our world has shaped us into believing that we need to we need to operate underneath the shame logic in order to produce the best that we can produce. Um and and so in light of that, I do agree that I think there is a certain amount of generosity or charity that Aang and Katara can display somewhat, right? Because th- we we also know that even they are not perfect people. Yeah. They're not perfect at being wholehearted. Oh, God,
0: definitely not.
1: <laughs> um, and Iroh is definitely someone who's not perfect at being wholehearted, right? Like, you know, but I do think that there's a semblance of um, a grace, grace in the midst of chaos that they embody that yeah. I personally wish I embodied all the time that I don't. Right. Um, I think there's something to be said about how, how perfectionism and shame, cause you know, they're, they're bedfellows. Um, yep. How that warps our imagination of the fact that this can be the best yeah. and that our best is sufficient that sufficiency is best, not Mm. excellence. And there's a privilege in that, right? There's a privilege in that proficiency. Aang had been pretty much presumed dead, gone for a hundred years as a popsicle. Katara is a child. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Katara is like what, 14, 15? (laughs) when this when this journey starts we give children grace
0: we sure do we give children
1: generosity iro iro did all of his dirt and then decided to become chill right so there's a grace that comes in youth and a grace that comes in our older age that folks who exist in the middle don't have
0: that's exact. so 100% agree with that. And I, okay, so, and this is why I'm calling Zuko's whole arc, not a redemption arc, but a wholeheartedness journey arc, mm-hmm. right? It's because from the beginning of episode one to the end of season three and into the comics, what we see is Zuko making this transition. We see his full, not, maybe not even full transition, but we see his like general transition towards whole-heartedness rather than perfectionism and shame and inauthenticity. Mm -hmm. And over time we see him start to embrace these different guideposts, even though he didn't call them as such and start to live this, this life where he is living into himself the way he wants to be. And I feel like that's what we see For Korra too. We see this arc of her becoming more wholehearted over the course of this journey. We see that for Aang. We see that for Katara. We definitely see Iroh nearer the peak of his wholeheartedness arc, but certainly we see glimpses of his past where he wasn't. And, you know, I I kind of have this aspirational idea, um, not a perfectionist idea, but an aspirational idea that we are all kind of on this path to become more wholehearted, right? And I think the problem is, uh, it really reminds me of like Miriam Williamson's like uh, a Return to Love, uh, the idea that as children we we didn't we were excellent lovers, <laughs> and not in the like. Sexual sense, but like we were so good at loving that we 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 said what we was on our mind. We loved without fear. We loved with vulnerability. And then it's only we learn to undo that. We we unlearn love, and then our wholeheartedness journey is all about relearning how to love.
1: I feel like you wiretapped my therapy session today, and I don't appreciate it. Um, See, <laughs> because one of the things that I said today was I used to be a hard person. I used to be so hard and in my traumatic event that happened to me, I I became tender and the one thing I don't want to lose from this journey of healing is my tenderness because I used to be so tender and then one day i woke up and i was told to put on an armor that i've never been able to put back down yeah and that's 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 the burden of shame right that's the burden of perfectionism is realizing that because because you hear so much this world will exploit your tender heart this world doesn't see you as good enough right you have to be perfect to be considered good
0: yeah exactly
1: it's an armor that you can't put down without risking coming apart
0: yeah oh okay so circling back just a little bit to this idea that so i i want to agree with you and then challenge what you were saying a little bit um so you were talking about like okay let's disagree with Brene for a minute and you know we treat others better often than we treat ourselves and I think there's multiple I think I want to separate that into layers and so I, I right now I'm only thinking of two layers but there might be more so there's this outer layer where yeah I believe that we are engaging and acting and the things that we are that are coming out of our mouths are are so much more filtered and kinder. Than we often speak to ourselves, right? Especially to the people we're in relationship with, right? So, uh, to our kids, we'll say we love them all the time, and we'll say we hate ourselves, <laughs> and we'll say, no, we love you, but I am the worst, and right? And I think what that's like layer one is our out those actions. And I think the second layer that's underneath that, that I think is perhaps more potent that I think Brene is speaking to and tell me if you just see this differently is the, the things that we say to ourselves aloud and in view of those people that were in relationship that speak louder than those words. So in, in, in the, in a sense of, uh, I think of times where I imagine Cora's teachers saying, uh, Man, that was a really you just did that really well. And then when they demonstrate it, they're like, oh, "Oh, I could have done that better. That wasn't very good." Or when a mother is, you know, spills milk after they just consoled their child for spilling milk and said, "No, sweetie, people make mistakes." But when I spill the milk, I say, "God, what an idiot." And I and I think it's those moments that is under that is in that second layer of how we treat ourselves drastically impacts those that we love. And that's what I think makes it so that we, that's what puts a ceiling on how well we can treat others. Does that, does that make sense?
1: It makes sense. Um, And I think there's, there is a layer to, to that, right? So, you know, we, there's, it's one of the, (laughs) one of the things that um, when I engage in negative self-talk that a really good friend of mine will say is like, I really wish you would be kinder to my best friend because I yeah. love them. Yeah. Um, and I love I'll that go. Idea. And I'll go. Shut up.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Your best friend needs to get their shit together, and that's me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but then there's another piece of it where it's like there is a certain level of those who don't do teach. You know what I mean? Like we, I. I'm really
0: good. That's me. Ooh,
1: (laughs) man, man! I have skills for days about how to to manage. You're right. You know, like (laughs) you know, I, my my clients would say, "Adira's got skills for days." anything you think you want to breathe wrong and dear's got a skill to help you make peace with your breath right uh-huh and yet <laughs> i'm rocking in a corner right and so yep. i think there's some there's a tension to that right that's why i say it's aspirational i think we want to treat ourselves that kindly like we want to offer yeah. ourselves that grace we want to give ourselves that reframing and yet trauma life the whole nine yep. living in a pandorama forces us to like, not be able to afford that gift. And so the practice of relational engagement, right. In relationship is learning that the tools that I give to others are good enough for me to receive myself.
0: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it reminds me of this concept we talked about before on the podcast on this mini series of When we are, um, oh my gosh, I lost it. I lost it completely out of my brain. It'll come back. It always comes back. Oh no. I feel I've, I've lost it. Oh man. What did you say? I forgot what you said. So
1: I basically said that of the, uh, the part of engaging in relationship, right?
0: Yeah. There it is. There there it is. is. It's the relationship aspect, right? The The whole thing that's really interesting is when we were talking about shame earlier on the podcast is that shame is social. Mm-hmm. Shame is a social wound. It is entirely based off how we think others will perceive us, right? And with that in mind, what is required is a social balm in order to heal it, right? And so it's, this it's interesting because self-compassion is part of the key which is not necessarily a social bomb but if we put it in the context of shame self-compassion becomes this this tool that allows us to treat ourselves better and then immediately have better grace, empathy and less judgment for others and again i'm pointing to Uh, Cora and Kuvira in this moment again, just because this is such an important moment in the show where Cora has just gone through this like immense three seasons of trauma. (laughs) Like she's gone through had it bad. Cora had it bad, and she like left. She went on like a sabbatical from being the Avatar, and uh, went in on her journey. She was processing. She was developing this sense of self-compassion she went to go see toff she went to learn how to deal with her her shit right she comes back and then kuvira is happening and that's and kuvira is so interesting because kuvira season four and cora season one very similar people very similar energy so similar and it's so i think that's what's so important is because Korra goes into this and is able to process this completely differently. She has this self-compassion where she's like, this, these things happened to me and I know that they happened to her. And because she's able to say, this happened to me, and really grapple with the fact that people go through shit like this, it allows her to treat Kuvira completely differently. Right?
1: Yeah. And can we just say that if it wasn't for Toph making peace with their own imperfect her own imperfection in raising her children
0: right oh oh you're so right
1: Cora would never have been able to connect the dots with kubira like yes. it was and that's this is what i'm saying about doing for others can reflect how we do for ourselves right yes if it yes. wasn't modeled right the compassion that Cora felt in realizing that Toph is just trying to be Toph, you know, yes. and that she was thrusted into this dynamic that she didn't imagine herself to be in when she was running around with Aang all those years ago, right? This world building. Yeah. I think Cora's, the whole Cora arc, right, is a lesson of understanding that even our faves are not perfect. Like, we see the glimpses of imperfection. For sure right? And we can model so much charity and grace to these characters. And then we don't give it to Cora. Yeah. Or we don't give it to ourselves, right? I have so much more compassion to my parents than I will ever do for myself. Mm. Because I have this acknowledgement about the fact that they did what they had to do to survive. They did what they had to do with the toolkit that they had. And that the toolkit itself is imperfect. Imperfect. So why do I expect them to be perfect? And then I look at the same toolkit, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I look at the toolkit, and I'm like, these tools are perfect. Why can't I work them right? (laughs) Like, yeah, Yeah. no. And so that's when I have to go back to myself and remind myself that that's where the generosity lies in. It doesn't lie in just you know excusing bad behavior or a shirking responsibility or accountability, here, but here. seeing it modeled, right? Yes. That this is a yes. human yes. process.
0: Yes. So like, this is like, again, a perfect segue into kind of probably our last little bit on, and which is this idea of self-compassion. And, you know, Brene breaks it up into three parts based off Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. And the three components that she breaks them up into are one, self-kindness, which is that the way that we speak to ourselves, right? We are warm and understanding towards ourselves when we suffer or fail or feel inadequate, right? And the second component, which is, I think, to what you were just speaking about, is this idea of common humanity, where my feelings of inadequacy are not unique to me, but they are part of a shared experience. Which is, again, I think, the skill that... Uh, referencing this core moment is that's the skill that's coming out most in this moment is this, this sense of shared common humanity. Um, and then third, just to be complete here is mindfulness, which is the, these, the feelings are neither suppressed nor exaggerated, right? We don't, <laughs> which is what I do. I like, and so I go into avatar state suppression mode, hardcore. Um, and yeah, I am a suppressor for sure. Um, but yeah, they're neither suppressed nor exaggerated, and we don't over-identify with the emotion, right? And mm-hmm.
1: feelings are not facts.
0: Feelings, feelings. We should feel feelings. They're important. But they're not facts. Correct. Yeah, and so we have these three components. And I'm I'm just I'm curious if there are moments where or a character that you feel like does this really well where they are really kind towards themselves or they practice this common humanity really well, or they're incredibly mindful and and you don't have to do all three well, but maybe they do one well. I'm curious if any of those kind of sparks a character for you.
1: You know, I really think um, that the range of feeling that Aang is allowed and afforded During his journey of being the avatar is a really good example of what that looks like. When when Aang kind of deals with failure or regret around the firebending, not being able to control it and intentionally, unintentionally harming. You know, there's the grief and then like feeling through the whole stages of grief, right? The the trepidation of trying again, you know, and then the acceptance of learning how to risk it all again, right, is a really good way of that, Um, you know, and he's a monk, so mindfulness is a thing. Um, I think even um, when Sokka has this, like, conversation about the fact that he felt useless during one of the battles because he didn't have powers. Yeah. And, like, this idea of, the gang the avatar gang kind of showing the fact that like even in the midst of us having powers, there's still a helplessness that I feel or there's still an uncertainty that I feel. It's that these powers don't make me any less fearful or afraid or you know, mindful, right? But yeah. being able to show that compassion as he's trying to figure out how he fits into this world. Um, is a way that we show common humanity and kindness, right? Because 100%. at the end of the day, he fulfills all these roles, right? He's the protector. He looks out for them. He caretakes. He's the comic relief half the time, you know? Like, And there's, there's, there's a certain level of charity that is offered in that moment that I think is really helpful in cultivating that not only self-compassion, but communal compassion.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, it really reminds me of this, moment i I can't place it in my head but there's a moment where ang says i'm just one kid and that's just what that's mindfulness right there that's that's common humanity that's self-kindness all in one line i'm like <laughs> i'm pretty sure it's in response to like the a fire navy fleet and being like I, I can't do it all i'm just one kid mm-hmm. and it's just like that's the kind of like realization of the that's just that's accurate he is just he's one child <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> trying you can't to take on all. this war
0: yeah oh okay all right so to put a kind of a little bit of a bow on this i'm we've 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 gone in several different directions we've really unpacked this idea of perfectionism in multiple ways and what we're walking away with is you know that we're kind of like stuck with it but at the same time (laughs) the way out of it is through at least according to this is through self-compassion and shame resilience so being able to name the shame being able to say like talk about all the shame resilience that we talked about in previous episodes and then cultivating this sense of self-compassion which has these three components of self-kindness common humanity mindfulness and so I think I want to just finish on this idea of this this dig thing that Brené ends her, her books with, right? Or ends her, her guideposts with, which is deliberate, inspire, and get going. And the, the way that she has kind of deliberated and offered us a chance to deliberate on self-compassion is to take the self-compassion scale that Kristen Neff provides on her website— uh, as a way to just kind of get yourself thinking about it. What, but for, for you, Indira, what's a way that you want to kind of deliberate this, this idea of self-compassion to start grappling with letting go of perfectionism?
1: Um, one of the things that I have learned to do is to pick one area of my life that I don't think is perfect and give gratitude for that imperfection. Mm. Um, and like really wrestle with finding the gratefulness that I have not achieved perfection in that area. Um, So a prime example is, you know, I, in my mental health treatment, I have had to now engage medicine and we had to up my meds for the semester. And so I gave gratitude for that by cooking an amazing meal, (laughs) um and reminding myself that not only is it okay that I have to up my dose but also what a gift that I give myself to be able to make the decision to treat myself with kindness that my brain doesn't have to work so hard just to get me going
0: I love that right you know what that reminds me of yes um, I, I'm kind of bleeding into this inspire moment because it's mm-hmm. really inspiring, but the idea, you are you familiar with kintsugi, which is the, yes. the art of, um, it's the Japanese art of when a pot breaks that they replace the crack with, with gold, gold inlay. Yes. That's what you're just describing is, is that, right? Mm-hmm. You're acknowledging this crack and instead of letting it be broken, you are replacing it with gold.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's just like, it's this idea of finding um, little pockets of celebration, even in the midst of what we perceive as a failure, right? So I celebrate when I ask for an extension on my paper. I celebrate when I reschedule a meeting that I don't have the bandwidth for. I celebrate when when I wash one dish instead of the whole dishes, right? Like the fact that I did something is celebratory enough. It's good enough. Mm. And this is the best that I can oh. get.
0: Right? So, it, so again, I'm going to be real with you. It sounds like you've got this thing all handled because I don't do any of that. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> those those things make me want to cry. I'm like, I don't want to do any of those things. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> I'm um, not saying that I have it figured out all the way. I am learning, right? And I think yeah. that's the piece, right? Is that I really sucked at it for a very long time. Mm. And failure is the only way that we can actually perfect so it's a life hack as i'm as i'm trying to perfect my depression right i am learning how to live with my imperfection which drives my depression life
0: hack life hack okay (laughs) So for D, deliberate, deliberate on the things that you can celebrate is something that I'm Mm -hmm. hearing from you. Yeah. Uh, For finding that inspiration, find people who do this well. Find where people are courageous in their lives and self-compassion in their lives. Mm-hmm. And then for for G, get going. I'm hearing that you're gonna start practicing those things where you're actually celebrating these things, like and saying having these permission slips. Like I'm gonna break the rules today, and I'm okay with it. There is mm-hmm. no should today. That mm-hmm. today is my day, and should does not exist on my day.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely,
0: and, and inviting I'm...
1: community to echo it with me. So one of the yeah. things that I do is you know, if my house is not mother approved by the time she comes to visit, the first thing I say is I don't need to hear what I have not done. Be grateful Mm. for what is. Yeah. And that's how we start our visits, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so I don't have that echo. So yeah, inviting community to share and show up with you as you're showing up for yourself.
0: So. I, I, again, maybe for us getting going at home, just is it uh, to have a little mantra saying, today showing up is enough, right? Um, whatever that mantra is for you, but something that where you can begin practicing these these things that we're deliberating, and for it's going to be different for all of us. So I encourage us all to kind of reflect and get inspired and inspire others and then get going. Okay, well... This has been an exceptional uh experience. I feel like it was uh a little personal therapy session for me.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> it's group therapy. We're all in it together.
0: Yeah, we're all in it together. Um, but so that's this time. This this episode. Uh next episode, we're diving into uh the next guidepost. So guidepost three. And for everybody listening who's following in the book, it's pages 84 through 100. And um, I'm really excited to see where that takes us and into the world of Avatar with all these other moments that we might be able to investigate and learn from. Um, Indira, thank you so much for being a part of this. I feel like I learned so much from you just in this hour and a half, much less on all of our other episodes. Um Tell us uh, if you want people to find you, where where would you want them to to look for you?
1: Absolutely, Um, because I now have an academic Twitter. Um, So you can follow me on Twitter at Black Trauma Nerd, that is B-L-A-Q, Trauma Nerd, all one word. Um, You can go to my website, www.imudofia.com if you want to look at my academic work or some of the other projects that I have um, and follow me on Instagram at sanctuary of the seeking Um, it's all one word spelled the same way all lowercase I put some stuff around religious trauma on there when I get a chance because I'm not perfect at social media management
0: (laughs) Nor are we, <laughs> nor are we. Gosh, I am the furthest from it. But that's a, an area where I don't feel any shame because I acknowledge that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so please go follow her and in, follow Indira. We follow her. I follow her on all the things. Uh, you can mm-hmm. follow us at BNB underscore pod. And again, we are imperfect at social media, but every now and then we'll we'll be tweeting and Uh, instagramming our tiktok is especially active but currently it is a lot of star wars content because my co-host for the main branch of our podcast is covering the entire star wars canon so if you're curious about a similar conversation in the star wars uh, arena you might want to go check out tiktok bnb underscore pod We also have a Patreon. We love your support. Our supporters are really awesome. We do live episodes monthly, have some bonus content every now and then. And so you can support us there as well. But if you're a really, uh, an avid listener and you really like our podcast, I also recommend giving us a review because reviews are cool. Um, and those go a long way, unfortunately. Um, it's fortunate that you're going to give us one though. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Thank you to all of the people that have been supporting us. Brené Brown for offering us this text to learn from. Alex Mayfield, Noah Blanchard, Max Gongaware. And especially to you, Indira. Thank you so much. Thank you. And until next time, be well and do...